0: Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today,
1: I am thrilled to have David McGinley on the show. David is an interfaith spiritual counselor at the QEII Health Sciences Center in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and author of Beyond Surviving, Cancer and Your Spiritual Journey. He has also survived cancer four times, which led to a profound near-death experience and explorations in consciousness and the connection of body, mind, and spirit. David, or with degrees in philosophy and as an ordained minister, David has a deep sense of purpose in supporting others in their spiritual journey. He knows what it's like to have cancer from both sides of the hospital bed and has a sense of this life from both sides of the veil. And you can read the rest of his bio um, in the show notes, because I really want to get started with David. Thank you so much for coming to the program, David.
2: Oh, great to be here, Marla. Great to be with yeah. your audience, too.
1: Yes, it's so great to have you. Um, so I just want to jump right in. I mean, you have, I've done almost 100 interviews now, and um you have a very unusual, unusual journey. You've had an unusual journey. And tell us a little bit about having cancer four times and going through that, and then a little bit about your near-death experience.
2: Well, sure. And, and thank you for saying I have an unusual journey compared to uh, over 100 people that you've interviewed. It's nice to be a little unique amongst that exotic <laughs> company, right? Because you've interviewed some really amazing people. So, mm-hmm. uh, but it's, it's interesting to hear that. It is an unusual journey, but from the inside, it is simply my journey. Right. So I've, I've had cancer four times, a very strange type called uh, peregring And 90% of these um, grow on the adrenal gland and function like an extra adrenal gland. So when your adrenaline is released, it triggers the tumor to explode with all of these chemicals—norepinephrine, dopamine, epinephrine—you know, catecholamines—and most people then die right away, you know, within thirty seconds, a minute, and um, it just makes your skyrocket, blow astronomically, and and overload your entire system. So you don't suffer uh, protracted illness with this disease and chemo and radiation don't work. You need a bomb squad to go in there and take that tumor out. And if you survive that, because as soon as you jostle the tumor, boom, it blows and you, you die. So um, most people die <laughs> before it's diagnosed, because the signs of it look like an anxiety attack, right? Trimming hands, beating heart, flushed face, uh, uh, sweating and, and fight or flight, right? All this adrenaline going in you. I've, I've uh, survived many explosions of my tumor. Um, uh, and I'm very, very lucky to be here because I've had it four times. I think I'm the only one on the books to have it more than once uh, or certainly more, more than uh, that, that many times. My tumors, 10% of these grow off the adrenal gland. That's me. 10% of those are malignant. That's me uh so nothing like being unique um oh. <laughs> and uh so i was actually um doing a church service in a hospital chapel now that's a pretty good place to die um because you're gonna have medical staff close by and you're gonna have people praying for you <laughs> so um i was doing this this church service i was on internship i was a student minister and, of course, public speaking is one of the most anxiety-provoking things you can do. It activated the tumor, and I tried to get it under control and just calm down, calm down, breathe into it. Um, really, every time I was stepping into the pulpit, I was taking my life in my hands. But I'm that kind of fool. Uh, and, and this time, the tumor blew, and um, down I went. I was out before I hit the floor. This was my second of four with cancer since uh, between ages of uh, 17 and 36 so um, I suddenly found myself on a grassy hill I didn't have an out of body experience I didn't see myself from above I was simply on this beautiful grassy hill there was a tree up there at the top of the hill I wanted to run to the tree I couldn't um, because there was someone at my side an angelic uh, entity a celestial entity and yet one that felt very much human and very much like my best friend uh i knew him and was known fully by him and uh, i felt his power and his compassion and his friendship and his generosity and his humor and his authority and his wisdom and companionship and ah it was great because now i was home now, that's the word described by the majority of people who have a near-death experience. And I always wondered why. In reflecting, I realize it's because you've come home to yourself. Here, there is so much material in the subconscious that we are suppressing. We actually are fractured entities, oblivious to the majority of our life story, uh, abysmal historians not able to remember most moments, and... Um, compensating or overcompensating for our ego uh, projection and transference and counter-transference. But there I was integrated, authentic. There wasn't any aspect of myself I was not aware of. I was one with everything. I was in full relationship to myself and the environment and every blade of grass that moved and the light that flowed through me with nothing less than love. He wouldn't run to the tree with me. He wouldn't. I, I, I tried to cajole him and encourage him, and he wouldn't do it. He just said, "We need to talk. Let's talk about life." And we did. And basically, it summed up in um, his four main statements: things are going very well. You can't stay here. You have more work to do, and we will be with you. Uh, there was no arguing. <laughs> I tried. Uh, I didn't want to leave, and I knew I was not here, and I didn't want to come back here. Um, I didn't care about here, right? It's not that I was cruel or insensitive or uh, didn't value what was here, but there, that state, you are so utterly complete and one with joy. Um, But he said, I had more work to do. I was 27 years old. And uh, he put his hand on my shoulder as my heart sank. And I realized I wasn't going to win. And he just poured in his love. And he said, it's going to be okay. We will be with you. And he sent me back here. Which um, really is difficult, if not an awful experience, to wake up in this two-dimensional form with the poverty of words and the fragmented thoughts and the abysmal inadequacy of everything to be as real as you know it should be. Um, and yet, how could we ever be disconnected from that reality? Right, That is the underlying consciousness from which reality emanates and is sustained. So I know I'm there, plugged in. I know it's. I can't be separate from it, but it sure feels like it. Um, as I bumble along (laughs) a fool as ever before in this world
1: as we all bumble along right
2: yeah
1: Uh, well I you know I found it just fascinating when you said in one of your interviews that the experience or not the experience but when you were there it was utterly ordinary ordinary in the sense that You kind of walked into another life, walked into another, you know, another place, another dimension, yet the experience was just so... Was it like it happened? I mean, do you remember it like it happened yesterday?
2: Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. Exactly. And this is also very common with near-death experiencers, every detail, the emotional energy, the clarity... Uh, the quality of his presence, that love, it lives in you. And yet you're stuck in this, so you're homesick, right? Wow. And we we suppress the vitality of that living memory because if we spend, you know, if we spend time in it, we end up just weeping. Yes. We end up just homesick. Right, and, and you've got to function. you got to deal with the reality you're embedded in. Right. So you, you put it away into a sacred room. And, um, and you, you bumble along. It doesn't make you perfect. It doesn't enlighten you. It kind of messes you up and makes you lonely. Uh, and yet, you know you're profoundly loved and one with it. So, just love others as you can while you're in this funny place.
1: So, David, before you, so that was your second NDE. And so, I'm sorry, it was your second bout where you had the, um, you dropped. Yes, because the cancer. And your first NDE, and also with your being, would you you call yourself a reverend? Is that? Oh, yes. Minister? Okay. I kind of get reverend and minister. When I grew up, it was a minister on a little farm in Indiana. Is it kind of the same, reverend, minister?
2: Yeah, yeah. so I'm a reverend, I'm (laughs) Reverend David McGinley. I'm a Lutheran (laughs) minister. So uh, reverend is to minister as doctor is to physician.
1: I see, I see,
2: great. So mainline religion. I wear the robes, we do the liturgy, we have the yes. communion and baptism and the hymns, and right? Uh, but I haven't had a church in, in well over uh, 10 years now, I'm, uh, or, or even 15. For 20 years, I've been working simply as a uh, chaplain at the hospital with palliative and cancer patients. Wow.
1: So who do you think it was that, that met you there, that presence?
2: Yeah, well, I know I can say with absolute confidence he was my best friend. Yeah. A lot of people, as I describe him, say, well, David, doesn't that sound like Jesus? Right? You're a Christian minister. Wasn't it Jesus? I never assumed it was. And I know this may sound odd, but it doesn't matter because he was no less infused with the, the spirit of Jesus, the character, right? He was love embodied. He was, he was, it was such a relaxed connection. And uh, I thought the hubris of saying, oh, I met Jesus in heaven was just over the top. Uh, I've instinctively joked, oh, it was a junior apprentice from the warehouse, right? Oh, it was yeah. just 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 some, some, some guy who, he, he's the bellman, right? And uh, I just touched my toe toe on the doorstep of the wonder that waits for all of us. And so it doesn't matter who he is. it, It matters that he is love, as all of us are in disguise.
1: Right, right. That's exactly. He was love. So before your NDE and being a reverend and... And living the life that you that you do. Um, Did you, were you surprised? What did this do to your to your beliefs? And what did you believe before your NDE that would happen?
2: That's a really insightful question. That's a big one. Mm -hmm. When I had my NDE, I was a student minister. So I had been studying theology parish administration, right? I was studying the orthodox doctrine of Christianity, uh, which includes the doctrine of sacrificial atonement, right? Uh, The understanding of of the blood of Christ, uh, the understanding of uh, the nature of grace and justification by faith, and all of these very Christian concepts. I continued to wrestle and practice that, that perspective. But over the years after my NDE, um, a deeper theology or spirituality emerged, right? Because it takes on average uh, 10 years for an adult to integrate a near-death experience. And it took at least that long for me to develop some theological or spiritual language that was authentic to what I had experienced. Yes. So now what I believe is very different from what I believed when I had a church. Jesus is no less central, um, but who and what he is, right? Now I have an understanding of Jesus as the historical figure and the Christ, right? Christ is not his last name. Christ is a word that means the everything, right? The consciousness from which emanates reality. So that's a nuance. Now my my faith is summed up in this statement that if God is love, then your spirituality is determined much more by the quality of your love than it is by the content of your belief. Focus on the love. Let love be your spiritual practice. Now, a lot of people say to me, well, David, you're a Christian minister. Doesn't well, What about Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life? You just can't have willy-nilly love all over the place, and everyone's happy. And uh, I challenge that, because uh, let's, if Jesus is God, fully made human, and God is love, then Jesus is love. Take out the name Jesus and put in the word love. It's no less valid. It's, it's very orthodox. Love is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through love. There we go.
1: I loved it when I heard you say, "I challenge is not the right word, but I suggest that you're curious and open up that dusty Bible. and might be find it somewhere. And every time you see the word Jesus, put in love instead. I yeah. love. It. I'm going to do that. I haven't
2: done it yet. <laughs> see how it feels right oh my gosh if really church, good right, right if only the church the church is in need of a new reformation right. and and love must always be at the core of it yeah.
1: yeah absolutely wow so when you were young and a student in this this nd you experienced this nde did you share it with anyone
2: no way <laughs> No way. And it's for the same reason I, that everyone doesn't. Most people don't share. You, you worry, people will say you're crazy, or you worry that you were, or that it was a dream or hallucination, or it will be diminished or dismissed. And I don't know what to do with it. Right? I, right after my NDE, it's a church service, right? Uh, I I recovered in this world. They wrapped me in a blanket. They took my vitals. They said I had a slight concussion because I'm a really tall guy and when I hit the floor it hurts. And they sent me home and I crawled into my bed and I grieved. And um, I didn't tell anyone for years. And um, there's no rational uh, explanation for that you'd think i'd get into the pulpit and proclaim it but you don't know what to do with it you have gone through existential dissonance you've moved from this level of consciousness to one so expansive and then you're compressed back into this with with the wetware of your brain and the the software of your language just completely inadequate to the experience so you have to slowly let it seep and simmer right, and then rise with experience uh, in the uh, years that that follow.
1: So when did you finally feel that you wanted to to start sharing, or did it just happen one day, you know, it was the right time and place?
2: Yeah, um, I started hearing about others that had near-death experiences, and I began having dreams, right, memories of it. That were visceral and making me feel so full and so loved and luminous and yet so sad, uh, and and I just wanted to cry, as well as to to dance with joy and and uh, I you know I allowed it to return, and I knew exactly what it was, right? This 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 is a living memory, and um. I, I, it's not that I forgot that it happened or when it happened. I suppressed it all in order to function with the world I was embedded in. Um, So when I did start sharing, I did it quietly and gently, recognizing, yes, I remember that. It's not, I had one of those. It was, it was, um... Oh, right. It's, it's a, it's like a breath. It's like a contemplation. It's, it's, it's a knowing. And um, I don't remember who I shared it with first. But I know I began sharing when I heard accounts from others. And um, year, a few years had passed by then and I, I, I didn't stop sharing. I just, there was one account and I wrote about it in my book. I was sitting with uh, um, an elderly couple in my first parish, Olaf was his name. And he had, uh, they were in their nineties, they had survived the war in in Poland. And he had a near-death experience uh, uh, when he was in his uh, late twenties and um, his wife had found him, he collapsed in the bathtub, hit his head. And uh, he related the joy and the, the vision and the love, and then he began weeping with me. This this young new minister, and uh, he was lamenting, "Why do we hurt each other? Why do we have war? Why do we? Why don't we listen to the love of God? It's so real." Right, and he told me about his, and that brought mine to life in a whole new way. Yeah,
1: and it's that. I'm sure the dreams, and if you, I'm sure when you meditate or however you do your pump contemplative practice um it brings it comes back up but you know how you wake up from those dreams that you know are either visitations and they're more and the emotion you feel when you know you wake i I mean i i can just feel it having this conversation from you yeah Yeah. so were you still when you experienced this were you still david were you still
2: you oh yes but not like this
1: okay so tell us about that
2: um again to now suddenly be you and yet one with everything an individual but an individual expression of the universal consciousness a drop in the ocean aware of the ocean um filled with joy connection rapture Um, and i was still this right? A biped, a human walking feet upon the ground. And yet in a body that was healthier than this has ever been. And a mind that is clearer and more intelligent and connected and sync and an ego that is, well, if I didn't have an ego, uh, I still had identity in some form and don't ask me to explain how, or perhaps I had ego identity, but it was now suddenly healthy. Right. I felt like a child at Christmas. Uh, and yet not really self-conscious of anything except the love, right?
1: Yeah. Oh. So you talk about we will be with you and what they to hold you and you say that they nudge you. I love that word nudge. They nudge you during your life and so, who do you think, I don't know. I, it sounds like a silly question, but I'm just going to ask it. Who do you think the we, the we
2: is? Yeah, who are they?
1: Who are they?
2: Well, whoever they are, they're very good at what they do. <laughs> As they should be. <laughs> <No>.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so when he, when he said they... Right, it's plural. So, you know, there is a spectrum of consciousness. There are so many levels and expressions of the one consciousness. So you can call them angels and archangels or companions or guides or whatever. Um, don't put them in a box. Just okay. trust that there, there's a multitude of them. Uh, I got the sense, and this was not told, I just have a sense that I've got three of them, him, and he is a masculine figure, entity, and two others, which you might call guardian angels. And um, I'm pretty sure they've been watching my foolishness every day since we were there. And uh, they're very, they have a good sense of humor and they're very patient and compassionate with, with me. And I am, a, uh, I am a silly and wandering expression of their love. I'm not alone.
1: I so it's okay. interviewed um Raymond Moody and he loves to talk about the humor in the, you know, in the heavenly realm, I will say, in the after afterlife. So much, so much humor. I'm very excited about that. And the knowledge. The humor yeah. and the knowledge. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I'm banking on that.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, I am too. So you say that you realized that love, it's not an emotion, but it, it is, well, you tell us what,
2: what it is. Yeah, if, if God is love, then love is not an emotion, it is the highest state of consciousness. Yes. Which means we continue to evolve into love after we leave this world. That's, that's pretty obvious, that's pretty basic. You don't sit on a cloud playing a harp with no intermission. You have adventures, you have growth and learning and things to create and explore. And it's a huge universe. And, um, you know, it's, it's the beginning of a, a completely new stage of development. Right. Which also means this, is, this stage we're in is no less sacred than that, though feels so separate from it. This, uh, that's why I, I have a, a cute little phrase in the book. I say, people who are aware of the gift of ordinary things and that uh, everything is really sacred, uh, it, it, it's, oh, I forgot. Elizabeth Bear Browning said this, and I'm paraphrasing. Um, All ground is sacred ground. Some of us take off our shoes and the rest of us just eat the blueberries.
1: I have that written down right here that yeah. I was going to ask you about. That
2: uh... yeah, so everything is sacred, even even a person who is um, yelling at me or honking their horn or really bugging me. They are sacred, and yeah. if I can observe my own experience in responding or reacting to that, my triggers. If I can observe my ego then I can better honor the sacred within them, even if they don't honor it within themselves. Mm-hmm. And I can do the same for me by being compassionate and kind to the inner child, uh, yes. by being tender and patient with the, the foolish, um, you know, the, the fool who wants to fight back. And, uh, and when in doubt, just keep your mouth shut, and your heart open, and focus on the love.
1: <laughs> what were you? Um, what was your experience as a child? What kind of were you sensitive? Or you were raised in a religious home? What's a bit about um, that?
2: We were nominal Anglicans or Episcopalian uh, in, in the American tradition. Uh, we um, family of five kids, Navy family. I was an introvert. Quiet, withdrawn, um, shy. Read a lot of books. Right. Uh, it was, was it a pleasant childhood.
1: Yeah. It was a pleasant childhood. No. So to take away a little bit, the work you're doing now is is just beautiful, and you're working in palliative care um, at the Cancer Center in Nova Scotia. And I was really touched by the story about Josh in your book. And so can you just tell us a little bit about Josh and what he, what he taught you?
2: Oh, I'm still unpacking the gift of Josh. That was so many years ago. He was the youngest person we'd ever treated. It gave him a bone marrow transplant, 14 years old.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, it was his buoyant spirit his friendly nature despite his suffering um, and uh, he welcomed me into his world and you know I was a giant I'm six foot eight so I'm the high priest
1: yeah
2: uh, come in and sit down with Josh and he'd be playing some video games and I'd play with him and his mom would be there and right we just talk talk plainly about the experience of fighting for your life And um, When he had uh, the transplant, he had uh, something called graft-versus-host disease. His body rejected the uh, donor stem cells and uh, started going into total system failure. Um, One of the things that calmed him is therapeutic touch. And I I teach that and use it with patients. So I'm moving my hands over the body in through the biofield, the energy field, and and trying to modulate a uh, a resonance that, that is going to facilitate balance and accelerate well-being and that calmed him and uh, connected him he really liked it so I came to work one day and uh, it was a Monday and I wondered how Josh did through the weekend because Friday was rough and I learned he was in, in the intensive care unit on life support everything was everything was falling apart So you go down, and you take a breath, and you pull the curtain back, and you step through. And he's so small in the bed, and this, all these instruments around him, and his parents are weeping. And they they said to me, they said, there's nothing more we can do, his liver has failed, his kidneys shutting down, if we keep him on life support, we're only going to be torturing him, and we know. The only thing that gave him comfort was therapeutic touch. Could you give him another treatment? So I, um, I had no idea how I could do that, but I, uh, I did. And um, I sensed from him fear when I initiated the treatment. And I, as I did it, I, I just had a meditation. We are with you. Love is with you, love will receive you. You're not alone, right? And and did the treatment, Um, right? My tears are falling on his body and my heart is breaking and yet it's so beautiful, right? We're shattered and beautiful. And then uh, nearing the end of the treatment, I I sensed, uh, I don't know how else to describe it, I sensed this peace and he knew that we were there. So this is what I told the parents. At the beginning was fear, and now there is peace. And um, so then I I stepped out, pulled the curtain, and they went to his side, and only, only took a few minutes, and he had died. Died in their arms. So in his dying, Josh... Taught me how not to abandon any part of my own sadness as I care for someone. Right? That sadness honors them. Yes. It doesn't compromise my therapeutic relationship. I'm a, I'm a chaplain after all. I'm right, providing spiritual care. If I will not show that sadness, I'm suppressing a massive part of my humanity. You can't be inauthentic in those situations. So be transparent. And I could knowing that he was going home, right? I I quietly, I secretly say to everyone I'm with who dies, and there have been hundreds, I I quietly say, uh, tell them hi from me, I miss them, right? And in every prayer over the dying and the dead, I end it by uh, just saying, well, we'll see on the other side. There are no final goodbyes.
1: Thanks for sharing that. Do you think in a, in a situation like that, and you know, I'm very interested in this work, that um, if Josh heard stories about NDE stories, do you think that would have been helpful to him, or or did
2: he, did they? It certainly would have been helpful for his parents. It would have been helpful for him. I often wonder about that when I'm with someone with an advanced disease or in a palliative situation. But I don't offer it unless appropriate, right? Mm -hmm. If spirit guides, if the moment creates an opportunity where it's appropriate, then share. And it can be as simple as asking a leading question. (laughs) Uh, What do you think it's gonna be like? Do you think there's anything out there? When I've done that, more often than not, someone will share, yeah, I think something's out there and they, they will say, I heard an account my grandmother or my aunt or my friend or right they'll shoot. and because over 80% this is according to a study done by Dr. Christopher Kerr at Buffalo Hospice over 80% of palliative patients as they approach death will have nearing death awareness uh, when they're not totally unconscious so this is a uh, nearing death vitality, they open the eyes, they see their welcoming parties, spirits of loved ones or angels, there's an infilling of peace, sense of connection to everything, uh, transcendent equanimity in the face of death, over 80%. Um, The the stats on near death experiences are very high. Uh, One in 10 who have a heart, a cardiac episode will have this, out-of-body experience, near-death experience, uh, or, or may, maybe that's one in five. I think it's one, one in five, yes. Yeah, one in five with cardiac. One in ten people who have a brush with death, according to Dr. Bruce Grayson's work mm-hmm. uh, and his fantastic new book, After. Well, I'd buy my book, listeners, but buy his first. I mean, I <laughs> love his book.
1: I love his book. <laughs> yeah.
2: So it's really common. But why aren't we talking about it in medicine? Well, because that's a material reductionist perspective in which we're trying to fix people. And this is still in the woo-hoo mystical phenomenon category. Okay, so why don't we talk about it in the church? Well, because we're theologically trained and not aware of the phenomenology of near-death experiences. And if the average individual has mystical experiences, then uh, what do we do with that? You know, that in the past has threatened the structure of the church. Uh, The universality of near-death experiences compromises the exclusive claims some denominations put upon Jesus, right? We need a more robust theology and um, understanding of this phenomenon because, hey, death is a 100% statistic. We're all going to find out one day. Right,
1: right. And the beauty really the beauty of it all, you know, Mm. not the dying part many times, but the transitioning.
2: Yeah, when pain is well controlled, death is for all of the grief and sadness. Death can be the most transcendent life changing experience for the grieving, right, Mm -hmm. let alone for the one who's dying. Right, got to keep pain well controlled. Got to use good palliative care. Yes, Uh, and it gets all complicated because we don't want to leave this world. We resist dying, right? Families
1: resist. Yes.
2: Yeah. Talk with kids about it. Show them death when there's an opportunity. Is there an insect that's died? Is there a bird? Is there a pet? Right, and ask them, what do you think happens? What is life? Get philosophical, get curious. Kids see it on TV all the time, in cartoons, right? There's an opportunity to talk about it, but be lighthearted about it and don't push, push it, right? Let the kids take the lead. Um, They're gonna be wiser than we suspect. 75% of children who have a brush with death will have a near death experience. So it's much more common with them. I think they uh, it's because they're more pure or they they don't have all that uh, emotional cholesterol built up inside over the decades. Uh, And if you can talk with them about this before they reach the age of five or six, because by that time, the memory, and the language and that intuitive connection to spirit or if consciousness exists before birth into that, that, that really disappears around age five, six, seven, right? So um, start early, relax, uh, talk about it with your family, but go do your homework first.
1: Yeah, definitely. So what would you, I just changed my question when I interviewed Rebecca Valla a few days ago. I always say what would you like to shout to the world? Well, not to everyone, but and she said, I like to not shout but sing. So what would you like to sing to sing to the world?
2: Oh, that's gonna be scary. Oh (laughs) (laughs) you don't want to (laughs) hear (laughs) that.
1: What I
2: what I would like to share with the world is to let love be your spiritual practice so like then it doesn't matter if you believe in god or not because right. it maybe in the end it doesn't <laughs> <laughs> what matters is how you love and um that that includes yourself how do yeah. i love myself in the food that i'm eating in the way that i'm sleeping in how i speak to you and how i speak to myself how do i love How do I become love? Practice, practice, practice. Have a sense of humor with yourself in that project and trust that there's nothing wiser to do.
1: Right. How do you walk in this life now after having such a glorious experience and kind of coming back to, as you say, the muck
2: <laughs> how do I walk in this life as human as ever? Yeah, right. I am continually astonished by the uh, foolishness of my mind of I am continually amused or infuriated by how ridiculous I am. Um, so I uh I'm still practicing, right? How do I love? I'm forever practicing it. And uh, it, it's a comedy and a tragedy, and it's all gonna be okay.
1: <laughs> right.
2: um, and warning though, when, when you do this work intentionally, teachers will be brought to you and they will bug yes. you. Right? The, the, yes, the, job, the job of the spiritual teacher is to insult you is to challenge your ego, right? Those defense mechanisms that kick up for self-preservation and justification and to say, I am strong of value, I am wise, I am powerful, I am here, I am important, right? Ego stuff. Be gentle with your mortality. Um, I, uh, I don't feel like I'm getting better at love, at life, at living. And I'm, I do recognize I'm quite incapable of seeing myself accurately from inside my own experience. That's why I need family to right. back me up the side of the head. Yes. Right? To, uh, to undermine my subconscious statements of, right, I'm always watching for grandiosity right? Or for, you know, ways I can prop myself up all. Just, but, you know, at the same time, don't believe all the negative thoughts. You're not horrible. You're not ugly. You're not inadequate. You're magnificent, beautiful, immortal, and a -a one-of-a-kind expression of the universe. But don't let that go to your head. Mm -hmm. Let it go into your heart. And know that everyone else is that too celebrate.
1: Beautifully said.
2: I, w- I was driving back from visiting family one day and um, my mother, I was vis- visiting them because my mom died. It was a couple of weeks ago.
1: Oh, I'm sorry.
2: And uh, a death that she was waiting for and that set her free from, from prolonged dementia and uh, I admired so much how my family loved her, and cared for her at home, and then uh, found the best place for her when we could not care for her well. And just, they loved beautifully. So I'm driving home with my son. And I put the music on shuffle. And what came on was this funny song, for, I think from the 90s called Wear Sunscreen. <laughs> and it's just advice of a guy at a valedictorian class Wear sunscreen. How do I live? I need to follow advice like that. (laughs) Right? Right? Not just wear sunscreen, but respect your elders and realize uh, advice is antiques from the past brushed off and sold again, looking new. Yeah. Anyway.
1: So if you could take a walk with your five-year-old self, what would
2: you say? Oh, boy. I'd say uh, invest in Apple. <laughs> buy, buy low, sell high. <laughs> uh, sorry, Okay, <that's...
1: laughs> What would you say after okay. that? Um, uh,
2: I I would, I would say, uh, I would say, don't be afraid. Life is going to throw some scary things your way and people are going to be challenging or, or scary as well. Trust. You are so much more than you could ever imagine. Follow your heart. Be kind. And forgive. Forgive yourself and others. Don't buy in to pain and resentment. Right, those are not good investments. Um, you will discover uh, for all of its. Darkness. The world is filled with light, right? But it comes from within. And my five-year-old kid wouldn't have a clue what I'm talking about. But you know,
1: I think maybe they would.
2: Yeah,
1: you're the wise ones.
2: Hmm.
1: Well, thank you so. Thank
2: you, especially for that last question because the five-year-old me still lives inside. I still need to talk to him.
1: I went to a retreat once and they had us take a picture of ourselves when we were like, I mean, find a picture of ourselves when we were like four or five years old and put it on our screen, like on our iPhone (laughs) or on our phone and just check in with that little person regularly.
2: Interesting. I'll do that.
1: Yeah, I know you will. <laughs> well thank you. So is there anything else you'd like to share that I didn't ask you?
2: Um no. No, this this has been really beautiful. This is lovely. Yeah. I, I I really appreciate it. It's it's all very heartfelt. If people want to learn, you know, learn more, they can go to davidmginley.com M A G I N L E Y. It's a weird spelling, and you, you can see all the requisite social media stuff and information. I I should write more and blog more, but um,
1: and your beautiful book.
2: Yes, and have a look at the book, mm-hmm. especially if you're facing cancer. Um, the tidal wave of patients just was so much, and. I'm glad the book is helping so many more than I could individually. It's surprised. surprise, it's, it's received awards and acclamations and wow, I was always such a, love. I was always a mediocre student. So that that's a total shock to me.
1: <laughs> well, this is a whole different, whole different ballgame, right? But I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time.
2: Thank you, thank okay. you. Keep shining.
0: It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you.